From WSC-FM and HD1 Columbia, I'm Ward Jollis, and this is Headline. Coming up on this week's episode, a conversation with new USC Provost William Tate. What he had to say on his first day in office about some of the university's biggest issues. Stay tuned to see how Tate feels about the university's reopening plan, his goals as the new university provost, and his opinion on some of USC's building names. Also, one USC professor has done some extensive research into police traffic stops, what these traffic stops have to say about systemic racism across the country, and other cultural stereotypes. All that to come right after today's headlines. Live from WSC News, I'm Warjalis. Coronavirus cases continue to steadily rise in South Carolina despite many cities across the state now requiring face coverings in public. With Fourth of July weekend steadily approaching, South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster is facing mounting pressure to sign an executive order requiring all citizens to wear masks. WSC's Abigail Brandon reports. South Carolina faced another record-breaking day for new COVID-19 infections yesterday, with the number of new cases reaching 1,782. This brings the state total up to 39,587 total confirmed cases, South Carolina's death toll up to 777, and the total infections in the United States to 2.68 million. During the governor's press briefing on July 1st, Governor McMaster and his staff highlighted the rapidly climbing new case numbers and the importance of social distancing and wearing masks. Despite these statements, the governor also said he is not considering mandating masks for the state. Some cities, such as Columbia, Sumter, and Lexington, have put their own mask mandates into place. I'm Abigail Brandon. WUSC News, Columbia. A brand new mural on the corner of Rosewood Drive and Assembly Street near downtown Columbia was vandalized Thursday morning. As WSC's Spencer Buckler reports, the mural, which features several people of color and is meant to celebrate diversity, was defaced with a racial slur. A new mural in downtown Columbia meant to celebrate diversity has been vandalized with a racial slur. The praise that read, kill all expletive, was painted over the mural meant to celebrate racial diversity. The art is meant to be a gift to the community done in conjunction with the nonprofit Haven Home, which was launched by Realty Haven to help create affordable housing. It's at the intersection of Rosewood and Assembly across from the fairgrounds. The artist says the slur has been covered and he will work to fix the damage on Sunday. There is a $5,000 award for information that could help lead to an arrest in this case. That was Spencer Buckler reporting. Two people have been arrested for trying to blow up a statue on Statehouse grounds of the former South Carolina Governor Ben Tillman. Tillman, who served as governor during the 1890s, was openly racist and glorified the lynching of black people. As WSC political correspondent Stephanie Justice reports, the incident is just one of many occasions over the past few weeks in which protesters have attempted to take down statues of racist historical figures. 
This week, two people were arrested for attempting to blow up the Ben Tillman statue that is located on State House grounds. The statue has been just one of the monuments that have been the focus of recent debates concerning removing statues that honor white supremacists and the Confederacy. This debate has gained traction since Black Lives Matter protests exploded across the country due to the killings of African American citizens by police, including George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Bureau of Protective Services Chief Matthew Calhoun said that the State House grounds must be a place where everyone can feel safe to peaceably assemble and exercise their First Amendment rights, but that there is no place for violence or vandalism. Stephanie Justice, WUSC News. On the national level, Democratic candidate for President Joe Biden still hasn't made a decision regarding his running mate yet. While some names like Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar have appeared on list as potential candidates, some polls suggest that voters may prefer a woman of color to round off the ticket. Political correspondent Sarah Huddick-Jeffrey reports. Joe Biden has not yet declared his running mate, but recent polls show that Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and now Stacey Abrams are in the lead. A YouGov poll of registered voters conducted June 9th through 10th had Warren in the lead with 30% of support, followed by Kamala Harris at 24%. However, a Monmouth University poll of a segment of Democratic primary voters conducted from June 1st through 9th showed a Harris leading with 28% support and Warren falling with 13%. A poll conducted by USA Today from June 25th through 29th found that Democrats supported Harris at 36%, Abrams at 28%, and Warren at 27%. This shift reveals that Democratic voters are leaning towards wanting a woman of color to be Biden's running mate. Glinda Carr, president and CEO of Higher Heights for America, an organization dedicated to supporting Black women running for office, says, quote, We need America to imagine the possibilities that exist for changing the face of leadership, end quote. Some experts claim that a more diverse ticket could also increase voter turnout. Sarah Hudak-Jeffrey, WSC News. The stock market is closed for Independence Day. It's currently 91 degrees outside, mostly cloudy with a low of 71 tonight. The high for tomorrow is 94 degrees, partly cloudy skies with a low of 71. I'm Ward Jollis, and you're listening to WSC News. It's 3.07. Are you having fun? You may think you'll be fine. Think COVID-19 won't bring you down, but what about me? According to the CDC, people like me with respiratory issues are at a higher risk of getting really sick. So don't be a... We need people like you to help. Follow the creed and don't harm your fellow Gamecocks. Wear a mask, slow the spread. Hashtag, I pledge Columbia. Thinking about grabbing a bite at your favorite lunch spot? It may be getting easier for you, but for many residents in Richland County, that's not a choice on their menu. Meals on Wheels serves people who can't access food, and COVID-19 has doubled demand. You can help by driving or packing food. Find out how to safely serve at MealsOnWheelsAmerica.org. Hashtag I Pledge Columbia. Hello, Meals on Wheels. Come on, buddy. Hey, neighbor, it's been a while. Oh, hi, Jenny. How are you guys doing? You know, staying home, staying safe. Staying apart can be hard, but we can still reach out. Columbia has many unmet needs, and Mutual Aid Midlands is stepping in. From delivering groceries to internet access to books for kids, they are people like us, pooling resources and finding solutions. If you want to help your neighbors and donate your time or special skill, join them. Find Mutual Aid Midlands on Facebook or call their hotline.
provost is a university's chief academic officer and is essentially the second in command behind a university's president. USC just hired a new provost in March, Provost William F. Tate, and Tate has been popular among students for a number of reasons. He was a finalist for the university's presidential search last year and was a favorite among many students. He's also the university's first African-American provost and has had an extensive career in education. This week, we were able to speak with a new provost on his first day in office about some campus issues and initiatives he plans to take during his term. Thank you so much for joining me today, Provost Tate. Um, so to start things off, I just want to start with a really easy question for you. It should be pretty easy considering your position right now. Um, but, you know, as a student, I'm speaking from personal experience here. Um, for a while, I wasn't even really sure what the provost was, right? Um, and a lot of students are still kind of like, you know, what exactly is the provost? We haven't had one yet. So just, you know, a brief description. What exactly is your role here with the university as the provost? Um, most people at most universities, especially students, do not know what the provost is. So you should not feel bad. <laughs> Let me start with that. Um, in essence, the provost is responsible for academic affairs. And so if you just think about what happens in the classroom or the laboratory or the libraries or any place where there is an opportunity to learn in a formal fashion, be it classrooms or laboratories or libraries, the provost is responsible for creating a context in which students can optimally be successful in those environments. And if you think about it, you have a vice president for student affairs. They deal with all of the, the issues around student groups, Greek life and things of that sort. And, but the portfolio around the, the provost is really around the mission on uh, academics, student learning. If you think about the mission of most universities is research, teaching, and service. The teaching part and aspects of the research part that are related to student learning are part of what um, the provost is responsible for. All right, all right. Just wanted to clear that up for our listeners here. So, I hope um, I answered that... <laughs> question succinctly, since that's a setup, that's, right? Yes, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so, the first, it's your first day on the job today, right? July first, day one. Day one. All right. So, first day on the job. You know, what are some of the first initiatives that you're really working on uh, on day one or week one? Um, finding out where the grocery store is. <laughs> okay. Is that fair? <laughs> and, then, and then after that, um, you know, really in the academic affairs uh, aspect of the institution, um, clearly all of us are working really hard to make sure that we can provide uh, learning opportunities in the fall. And so uh, right now it's all about um, stabilizing the system and being able to move into the fall semester in a safe and healthy manner. Um, that's first and foremost. And then the second thing that I have to attend to, um, the trustees just um, passed the plan that President Kaslin and the team put forward related to strategic planning and many aspects of that relate to academic affairs. And so I have to attend to that right away. Yeah. So you were voted in as the, uh, the new provost in March. So it's been a, it's been a few months um, and it's been right before all this coronavirus stuff started happening. So what has your role been like over the past few months at the university? What have you been up to? Uh, have you been a part of the decision-making process in regards to coronavirus at all? And what, what does that look like? Um, not at this institution, but at, at Washington University, where I was actively on the leadership team there. Um, but I, I was um, given permission to sit in on the meetings um, 
that some of the meetings that were happening here. So I was largely um, a participant just as out of courtesy and to help me be up to speed. So when I started today, um, I would know where the institution was in terms of decision making. So um, I think it was a very good onboarding. It probably would not have happened under normal circumstances, but because of the pandemic, um, was able to sit in on meetings and really uh, hear the decision-making process. And I should say, um, for uh, your listeners, um, having listened to two different universities plan and prepare for the pandemic, that uh, you should feel very comfortable and confident that the process that happened here was outstanding. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good thing. That's a good point. Um, and with that in mind, I'm going to go into a few of the issues right now that students on campus have been talking about uh, recently. Uh, and, and what your opinions are on some of them. So one of the biggest ones, like you mentioned, was the reopening of campus. Um, in-person classes, you know, some people are worried about the safety of having in-person classes, and then other people are saying, I don't see why we can't just go back to normal. Um, you've done some research in public health. Uh, in your opinion, you know, you say the university's approach is feasible right now to reopening. Um, would you do anything more or less, though, in regards to the current plan? The current plan, if implemented, so right now, to me, um, the, the, the plan is excellent. What the, the, the rubber hits the road from planning into execution. And so if um, the students treat one another as neighbors, um, and I'll use it in a biblical sense, if you like, or just in a community sense, that you will respect your neighbors and actually do things for them that you would do for someone that's in your family, that you deeply care about, um, then the plan will be executed um, because it's coming, going to come down to the students actually adhering to what's being instructed in terms of how we need to operate with one another. And I think that is uh, the huge part of unknown, right? How will your fellow students respond to directives around masking up? How will they respond to directives about social distancing? How will they respond to them both on campus and probably more important off campus where they're not being regulated by uh, fellow students and the like? So I just went past something called five points coming here. How, how, what's going to happen there? Um, that's an epidemiological nightmare if students don't adhere to the kind of directives that they've been given in terms of what they should do on campus. And so I, I, um, I can't control that. Um, and, but I can only be a cheerleader and encourage people to follow what has been laid out and what I think is a very good plan. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I see you've done some extensive research actually in the past two pandemics and pandemic preparedness. Um, and you, you authored an article actually about pandemic preparedness, went through and read that a little bit. Tell me about that research and what you think it says about our current situation. Well, the strategy that has been laid out in, that was for H1N1. But still, it was, it's the same concept because we're still dealing with a microbial that's airborne. Uh, the, real, the reality is that um, in both cases, um, masking, um, social distancing um, are extremely important um, tools to mitigate um, the spread of the virus. And so I think that um, that research was informative in that way. It, it actually prepared me for the job in some distinct ways. I actually really believe fully in the science behind um, the recommendations. And so uh, for some, some people don't, and, they, and it's, it's become sort of a political litmus test. For me, it's a scientific matter 
on what does the science say about social distancing and wearing a mask. And if it says that it's likely to keep you safe if I wear a mask, then I should wear a mask to keep you safe. Um, if, if it says that if I, I'm socially distant from you, um, I can still be connected to you in other ways, but if I'm socially distanced, I protect you, then I need to do that. And so um, it just reinforced for me. I never thought I would be using um, that particular paper in a context of actually being a provost. You just don't know. But um, at the time when I wrote it, uh, just some backdrop, there had been H1N1 breakouts and I was sitting in a professional development in New York City, where it's, it's really a hotbed right now, or it's fortunately um, flattening out. And um, they were calling people into uh, opportunities to try to keep young students safe. And I thought, this is insane. There's no plan here. And uh, that, that's what led to that paper because I thought we needed to have a real articulated plan. Well, yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, another big hot button issue right now at USC, and I'm sure you're, um, I'm sure you're aware of it, is this push to rename several of the university's buildings. Um, recently, President Castlin uh, created the Presidential Commission on University History. They found 17 of the university's 60 buildings had ties to racist or other controversial figures. And the Board of Trustees has been pushing to rename uh, one of them, Sims Residence Hall, but, but not a lot has been done on the remaining buildings. Uh, do you think there's more work to be done here? Well, I, I'm confident um, with the commission in place that um, they will begin to contextualize each one of these artifacts and provide um, insights for us as a community to make good decisions. And so uh, I look forward to uh, hearing what they're going to um, say as a result of the, identifying uh, the artifacts and providing a, the appropriate context for us to think about it as a collective so that we can put a value statement on um, what they find. I think that they will move expeditiously and um, I look forward to it. Yeah, so how are you going to make it one of your primary goals to ensure that people of all actual assumed identities feel comfortable here at USC and pro continue to promote diversity? Well, um, I feel really good that I have a colleague, uh, Julian Williams, who is outstanding um, at uh, what he does. And he and I have been in communication um, uh, throughout our onboarding process. And we hope to work together in a collective fashion to make sure that um, the policies, procedures, and uh, practices of the institution line up with the very best strategies to advance uh, inclusivity and opportunity for all. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and in your opinion, you know, other than these issues that I brought up, what are some other big issues that you really want to hyper-focus on in your time as provost here within the next few years? Well, the strategic planning is going to be a priority. The planning is done. It's going to be about execution. And the provost's job, if I didn't mention it, it's sort of like being a uh, pilot of a plane. And um, you get the map, and then you have to drive it. And, uh, or fly it. And, and in many respects, the provost has to do that. So um, when I agreed um, during the interview process, um, President Kazan uh, indicated to me that if I was selected, that um, it would need to be a priority for me to be someone who could operationalize the strategic planning because it would be done by the time I arrived. And he is a man of his word that it is done. <laughs> and um, so a big priority will have to be for me uh, to organize a team 
here in the provost office to be of greatest support for the execution of that strategic plan. And I think many of the pillars of that plan are, will make this a, make a great university and take it to new heights because I think it's very ambitious. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of really great plans for the university in the future. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, but finally, something a little bit off the administrative side. You know, you're a new person. You're a new leader on campus. Uh, not a lot of people really know you yet. It, you know, what do you want people to know about you? What, who is William Tate? Who am I? Hyper-competitive person, hyper-supportive uh, of people. Um, I don't compete to beat you. I compete to be the best person I am, I can be. And I, I, I stay within myself in that way. I tend not to talk about myself, so your question is really awkward. <laughs> That's okay. I feel the same way. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm someone who uh, really uh, has a passion for education. I'm a product of a family of educators, and so education has always just been a paramount part of the programming I've had in my own uh, upbringing. And at this point in my life, um, the beauty of my life is that um, I can try to help other people who have that, you know, catch that same passion that I was given, you know, growing up and really uh, help people see why education is so important um, for our democracy. I'm somebody who really cares about our democracy and I want to see it flourish. And I believe the democratic project flourishes when we have outstanding research universities contributing new leaders. And it means a lot to me. And so I hope people will get that impression from me that the reason I invest the time and not just do my own research independently, but want to see and foster other people is because I believe it's central to making us have a great country and, uh, and of course, making South Carolina even better. All right. Well, Provost Tate, thanks so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed getting to know you and thanks for being on my show. All right. So um, you get to see the hyper competitive part when we start athletics again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will. All right. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Good deal. Great chatting with you. That was new university provost William Tate. We'll be right back. Glad to be back in Columbia, seeing friends, heading back to class. Unlike other colleges and universities, we get to come back. But keeping it that way means keeping your distance. The CDC says staying six feet apart is the easiest way to slow the spread of COVID-19. So stay back, stay healthy, and lead the way. Because nobody wants to go back to Zoom you. Over the past few weeks, protests have erupted across the country after the deaths of numerous people of color at the hands of the police, many pointing to systematic racial problems in our country's police force. Groups from around the country have been calling for an end to racial injustice and, of course, police reform, many calling for local-level action to defund police departments and, in some more extreme cases, even abolish them. Some professors at the University of South Carolina have been doing a lot of research into systemic racism throughout the country, and here with me today to talk about some of these issues is Professor Kelsey Schaub. 
She's a political science professor at USC who co-authored the book Suspect Citizens, What 20 Million Traffic Stops Tells Us About Race and Policing. In her research, she specifically analyzed traffic stops in North Carolina, Connecticut, and Illinois, and found some interesting cultural trends in all three states. Professor Schaub, thanks so much for joining me today, and just to start things off, tell me about what the initial findings were from this research that you were doing. Yeah, so the book follows essentially as like three big themes that it hits home. So one is that black drivers do see disparate treatment um, as compared to white drivers, which is one of those to a certain extent, hopefully surprises no one at this point in time. However, you still see a lot of arguments that discount the like individual stories that come out from people and instead start to instead like want something I don't know, like a little more systematic or at least to convince sometimes those that are very skeptical that it's actually a systematic problem. You need to hit them over the head with a bajillion different kinds of evidence. Um, and that that's kind of what we did on that front. So we show in a few different ways that black drivers are more likely to be searched um, following a stop. And we focus mainly on what happens following a stop because we don't know what the population of drivers actually looks like, but we do know what the population of folks that are stopped looks like. So black drivers are more likely to be searched, men are more likely to be searched, and black men especially are far more likely to be searched than their white counterparts. Yeah, so based on all that research, I mean, do you think that it's safe to say that many police officers are racist in this decision-making, or is there something else going on below the surface, maybe with some other factors? So that actually brings is like the second main thing that we, second main theme, I would say, in the book, is that it's not an individual, like an individual's problem, but rather a systematic problem across, across and within police departments. So it's not just that like one specific officer is incredibly racist, and then that is throwing off everyone's analysis of all of this, and that's, that's what the root cause is, but rather that for one reason or another, and it's not necessarily that everyone like goes out on a racist mission, but rather that the people making the decisions and the people that are actually out on the streets, just like you and I, um, brought up in a society that's conditioned us to think of various stereotypes and heuristics um, as to what and what types of people are seen as more criminal. And that carries over into police, police traffic stops, especially because traffic stops today are far more, are used for things other than safety, and they are pretty explicitly used for things other than safety. Um, and that's mostly rooted in like the war on drugs. So they, they supplement um, the pursuit of quashing down like drug rings and stuff like that through traffic stops. So I mean, Wait. clearly, yeah, so clearly there's been a lot of extensive research done in recent <laughs> years regarding racial trends and policing, uh, specifically traffic stops. Um, did your study in particular for this book, find any trends regarding any other type of people? For example, maybe women, other minority groups, groups. Uh, yeah. gender-based phenomenon going on? Tell me about that. Yeah. yeah, so like the two the two big categories that you see these uh, trends in are obviously race, um, which we've been talking about, and the other is like another big one is gender. So like you and I are less likely, both of us being white, are less likely to be searched following a traffic stop um, than our like comparative black counterparts. However, between the two of us, you are far more likely as, as a young man 
to be searched following a traffic stop than I am as a young woman. Um, so like that, that is also a big one. The other two that you might think of also matter are age and socioeconomic status. So the older you get, the less suspicious you are. Um, and then the, or the less likely you are to be searched, which we tie back to sus suspicion. Um, and then the other is some of the data that we've looked at have let us sort of get at the um, socioeconomic aspect. Um, because like, so Illinois is another state that we've gotten a lot of data from. They actually record like how old the car is as one is one of the various fields they actually collect. Um, so you see the people that are driving older cars are more likely to be searched following a stop. So I know you mentioned Illinois, North Carolina. Uh, so those are your primary sources of information. What about from any other places? I know that there's been some issues recently regarding police accountability and police department transparency. And obviously not every police department is going to release its records, right? So, you know, how can we, how can we use this to look at the broader picture? So I think what we've done, and then there's another, so we've collected as much as we can that includes usually municipal level information. Cause one of our other, like some of our other projects specifically looks at like, how revenue generated from fines, fees, and forfeitures then influences who gets searched following a traffic stop. Um, but another group, Stanford, Stanford Open Policing Group, um, they have state highway patrol data from almost every state because state highway patrols, because they are huge state agencies, are actually usually pretty good at data collection. Um, and for us, yeah, it's Illinois, North Carolina, and then Connecticut. What all of that over and over tells you is that these disparities are nationwide. They're not, they're not like a Southern problem or isolated to places that specifically have like histories of high level, high degrees or high levels of segregation or like very conflictual racialized pasts, um, but rather they're wide, widespread, systematic, prevalent. They're just everywhere. Um, so this is a national problem. It's not localized to like one city and not another. So you said you said that um, this problem specifically with uh, traffic stops um, and searches is a systemic problem. In your opinion or through your research, have you found any solutions to these issues, maybe possible policy changes that could potentially be a path forward that might be promising? Yeah, so, so two things, two small changes that I either through our research or from someone else's research that have been shown to drastically change things. Um, one is in very publicly and very adherently uh, introducing a written consent form as part of a consent stop. So I don't know if you've ever been pulled over or how closely, <laughs> how much you know about police traffic stops. Um, but once you're stopped, if you're searched, there are a couple different reasons why you may be searched. So one is a probable cause search. So like if you straight up have beer in the front of your car, they can, take the beer because they can visually see it. Or if your car like reeks of weed, they may smell it in order to like find drugs. Um, and that is probable cause because they have, they clearly see something or smell something happening that gives them cause to think that you are breaking the law. Um, another common way to do it is something called a consent search, which is they ask your permission to actually search the car. And if you say yes, they can search you in your car. Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of us, when confronted with a police officer asking asking us to do something, we will 
a majority of the time comply because they are authority figures that we're taught to respect and trust. Um, and that also like in barring any of that, they're armed individuals asking us to do something. So we're probably going to do it. Um, however, in some North Carolina cities, what they've done is institute a written consent consent form that very explicitly says that you can say no, there will be no consequences if you say no. And then they also put that in both Spanish and English. And then you physically have to sign that form for them to actually search the car. That does two things. One drives home your rights and two creates even more paperwork for a police officer to actually deal with. Um, another reform that um, Jonathan Mello, who's a professor at Princeton has shown d does do some work um, in changing how officers approach some of this is actually including like a narrative box on the form where people actually have to um, explain why they were carrying out the search. Um, and where his data comes from is the stop and frisk data and policy out of New York City. Um, so essentially the police chief very suddenly in that case decided that decided and announced that this would be a new thing on these forms. It sounds like the officers in turn thought that this would mean greater surveillance of them. And so then they actually stopped doing as many searches and stopped doing as many stops. But like the rate at which they found contraband, so like weapons, drugs, that kind of stuff, following a search actually increased. So they got essentially they were searching fewer people but they were searching because they were fairly confident that someone was breaking the law. Um, and so effectively it looks like they did, they started getting better at their jobs. Yeah. So last thing before I let you go, you have an extensive background in political science. In your opinion, what do you think this time we're living in where, you know, we have a president who is repeatedly called protesters thugs. Um, he's retweeted racist things on Twitter. Um, from some of the supporters, you know, what do you think all of this, you know, calls for racial justice in the past um, really say about the upcoming election where Donald Trump is, you know, running for re-election? What do you what do you think about that? And this you can already start to see where people are starting to go out in far greater numbers in a lot of areas and people are starting to participate in ways that they didn't either didn't realize they could before um, or that they didn't realize how easy or how worthwhile getting involved in those ways are. So like for the first time ever, I've seen people like very act, very, very actively, like all across Twitter telling people like when to go vote for the local ballot election on these, like my, what in other points in time would be thought of as like minutia, but are now like, you guys need to go out and vote so that we actually have control over our city budget and stuff like that. Um, and I think especially for policing, that is like one very, important way to go about it because if you want at the end of the day the police are in fact local local bureaucrats um and they should be responsive to the people that they're supposed supposed to be protecting and serving um i think we're going to see a lot more a lot more activity at the local level and i think we already are as well all right well kelsey thanks so much for talking to me today and giving me all this insight thanks Thanks for having me talking to me and stuff. Well, that's all for this week's episode of Headline. Make sure to tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. for the week's biggest stories. 
The music for Headline is called Conversation by Broken Summer. Headline is a production by WSC News and is part of the Garnet Media Group Podcast Network. Garnet Media Group is a partnership between the student-run media outlets at the University of South Carolina. You can find other Garnet Media Group podcasts and student work on garnetmediagroup.org. From WSC News in Columbia, I'm Moore Jollis, and this is Headline.